This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Join Justin Townsend and the Harvesting Nature crew as they explore the world of cooking wild fish and game while sharing recipes, tips, tricks, and lessons learned from their pursuit of wild food. We sure hope you ate before the show, because you're going to leave hungry. This is the Wild Fish and Game Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to Harvesting Nature's Wild Fishing Game Podcast. You got your host here, Justin Townsend, and uh, tonight we got a very special guest uh, for you. We're going to, as always, talk about some delicious wild fishing game, uh, as well as his cookbook, which he released last year. Uh, but first, before we introduce our guests and get into that, we'll get some of our news out of the way. So, uh, updates for me, uh, antelope season is in full swing here in Colorado, and I will be uh, chasing antelope this weekend. Been honing in my archery skills. That's kind of the big deal for me. Uh, did some cooking in the cooking classes. I attended uh, Ara's, um, what was it, Flaming Hot Cheeto Scotch Egg cooking class that he did last night, which was which was remarkable. Uh, we had good participation. I think there was like five or six people on that. But we're rolling through with these cooking classes every uh, every week, and uh, I don't see that we're going to end them anytime soon because I like doing them. They're fun, interactive. People learn to hone their wild game skills a little more. And uh, the plan is down the road to get maybe some butchering techniques and uh, some more like in-depth uh, kitchen technique stuff too. I know people appreciate that. But uh, with that, uh, you can go down in the show notes and click the link that'll be titled the Harvesting Nature Supper Club, which is that little venue that we're operating our, our cooking classes out of. And so those are virtual online, uh, as well as you can go back and you can purchase the on-demand versions of the class uh, so that you can watch it in your leisure uh, as many times as you want. So those are available there too. All those show note, or all those links are down in the show notes. No big deal. Uh, Adventures Food Podcast did one of those a couple weeks ago. A little spearfishing adventure. Uh, that was super fun. Hanging out with sharks and lionfish and all that stuff. Uh, I would say there's not many things I do uh, that I enjoy tangling with sharks, but lionfish are delicious. Probably one of my favorite fish to eat out there, so it makes it kind of worth it in the end, uh, as long as you don't get bit or stung, I guess, by the lionfish. So, uh, as always, you can buy us a cup of coffee, help us fuel... Uh, those long nights of podcast editing, article writing, recipe cooking, venture planning. So click that link there in the show notes, and, and we're always happy for a, a donation of a cup of joe. But uh, I'll go over to Colin. Colin, what you got going on in your neck of the woods? Uh, hey, everyone. It's Colin. Um, not too much really going on here. Uh, I was actually back home in Pennsylvania for a few days going to a wedding, and uh haven't really done much in the outdoors back there. That was mostly just catching up with family and stuff. But uh, we do have some seasons coming up. I think I said in the last podcast that I was on that bear season started here back in the beginning of August. Um, we got 
September Goose starts in September. I'm doing a pheasant workshop <laughs> in what? Imagine that. <laughs> September Goose starts in September. <laughs> yeah, I guess that. Uh, I guess I didn't need to tell you that. Um, I got, I'm doing a pheasant workshop. So uh, ODFW, Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, they, they started putting on these uh, skills classes and hunting workshops. And um, I did the skills course for it. It's a prerequisite. And it's like basic shotgun skills. I mean, it's like how well, these, these are the parts. These are the gauges. This is what gauge and cartridge means. Um, this is how you load it, all that stuff. And then you actually go out to the range with some volunteer but professional coaches and you just shoot clays for like four hours. It was really awesome. Um, we had, I learned a whole lot. I mean, I've shot a shotgun plenty of times before, but just like how to follow it with your eye and everything. You, like you aim by mm-hmm. not aiming. Yeah, really neat. And then I'm actually doing the pheasant workshop with them in September, um, the day that deer season, early deer season opens here and goose season. But I'm going to this pheasant workshop because they have a – like guides with you with dogs and everything and they like tell you when to shoot and they stock it with pheasants the week before so i'm really looking forward oh, that's to cool it. uh and it's like i think it was like 75 dollars for the course and this workshop so i mean imagine what it wow. what it costs to get yeah. an actual pheasant guide out there with a dog on your own dime like it's a really sweet deal uh so i'm, yeah. I'm looking forward they have one for ducks coming up uh they have one for turkey they have one for fly fishing so I'm really I'm going to sign up for all of them pretty much and go to all of them. Really looking forward to them. Yeah, that's really cool. It's a good uh, a good way to uh, you know, uh, especially for you as like an adult onset hunter to to get in there and, yeah. and both meet people and and hone your skills. I was thinking back. So back when I was in high school, I used to shoot skeet. Uh, our like FFA chapter, which is Future Farmers of America, which yeah. obviously I'm not a farmer, but. I was at one point, um, which is where that played in. But we had a, a skeet shooting team, and we would go to state competitions and national competitions. And uh, I really learned to shoot skeet well there, and I think that played well because uh, the the dove season and then the duck season following that year uh, was just phenomenal yep. as far as the way we were out to get the harvest game just because you spent so much time like shooting, 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 just like anything. You practice, practice, but – uh, I don't know if a lot of upland game hunters maybe overlook that fact, or maybe they do in the the off season shoot a lot of skeet. Yeah. But I think it's a it's a great skill to maintain uh, both in the off season and during the season too, if you've got some downtime. Yeah, definitely. Actually, I wrote a short article on it. I think it's going to come out this week or next week um, about the whole just the shotgun skills course, and then I'll write a follow up one after the pheasant workshop. But uh, oh, cool. I mean. There were six people in the course, six students, and uh, I think it was myself and one other guy who had shot a shotgun before, and there was one other person who had shot just any gun in general before. So half the class hadn't even shot a gun before, and four of them hadn't shot a shotgun before, and by the end of it, everybody was hitting clays. So it was pretty, it was pretty awesome. awesome. I think ODFW really has the right idea with this, um, this program for – the R3 and getting people yep. into it and keeping people back and getting people back into it. If that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's super cool. The only thing I find about shooting clays all summer, uh, is you should use the same gun that you hunt with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that's I, good. yeah that's I shot, good I shot all summer one year with, uh, a field double barrel break action. And then when I switched to my semi-automatic, the action is like four inches longer than a break action. And it's the same. So, so then I go to using a gun that's four inches longer and opening day duck season, I like missed like half the shots I took. Oh, wow. And then, uh, so now I've ended up getting a, uh, a break action, like clay gun that is a 30 inch barrel that kind of with extended chokes, it kind of matches my semi-auto that I hunt with in length. So it swings the same. Yeah. But uh, that was uh, – I couldn't figure out what it was. And um, I thought, you know, it's probably switching between these two guns that are four inches different in size. It's crazy how how much, you know, a slight difference like that makes. But, yeah. wow. Yeah, that's a yeah, good – It was, a good it was funny. It, me- it messed me up one, one year. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, just my last note about it. That was another thing that I really liked about it. They had um, some over-under break action and semi-autos 
so you can kind of like feel which one you're more comfortable with or if you know if you want to go with a mm-hmm. classic over under or if you want to go with a fancy semi-auto i mean i don't know maybe yeah. they're putting a plug out there for benelli but man that thing was smooth yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh yeah they're nice yeah they're real nice i thought it was really cool um, i'm really looking forward to the next couple so you're gonna cool. are you gonna invest in a I might have to. It was a twenty gauge too, and I have a twelve gauge. So, Michael, like you were saying, it's it's not quite the same gun. So, I don't know. I might have to, you know, get in line with what they're teaching. But um, <laughs> yeah, so. I think you get to a point where it doesn't matter what you're holding. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you can shoot, you can shoot. But uh, yeah, I I started archery hunting uh, in my early twenties, late teens, before I really got into guns, and it hasn't been for. You know, the last couple of years, I've really started to get in. You know, I really enjoy uh, using firearms as opposed to archery. Okay. I still love archery, but I, I kind of like, I think I've done it kind of backwards. Um, you know, the way a lot of people do, they start out with guns and they kind of move to archery. Um, you know, now, you know, the, the amount of time I have to hunt uh, is getting shorter and shorter sometimes with work. Uh, and when I see a deer or whatever it is, 150 yards away, and I, I can't, I can't get to it with my bow. Um, you know, I'd much rather just have a rifle now yeah. <laughs> yep. and fill my freezer, uh, you know, <laughs> then have that buck get away and try and stock this thing. And it's, uh, it's it, where I live. It's very hard to archery hunt. So gotcha. I, I do this. So this year is actually my first year in the archery. Um, I, I've been primarily a rifle hunter my whole life. Like I've owned a yeah. bow. I still have. Yeah the bow my grandfather bought me when I was like 12 years old and I've been carrying it around as I moved around the country for, you know, what, 20 years now. And, uh, it's just like, I don't know. It never struck a fancy with me until I got out here to Colorado and I'm just like the, there's so many opportunities in the archery season so mm-hmm. large and long that yeah. I was like, I should probably pick up a bow and, and get started. Yeah. So, yeah. And it's cool. And I love it. And I have a lot of respect for it. Um, but uh, where I live specifically, the whitetail deer population seems to be going down as the coyote population rises. And mm. uh, uh, that and losing hunting permission on, on properties is becoming harder and harder to archery yeah. hunt. Um, and uh, I've, you know, I've sat on these, some of these farms I have permission and I won't see a deer all year. So I'll just go out with a rifle somewhere and shoot one. So, but I still, I still love archery, but uh yeah, if it comes to it comes down to it, I I really just want to fill the freezer. Yep, efficiency. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand completely. I'm like, um, it's kind of how I like to turkey hunt. You know, I'll shoot my first one with a shotgun, uh, get that out of the way, and then I'll go out with a bow afterwards. Huh? See, I didn't yeah. think about that. That's a good strategy too. We'll to yeah, just get one because we get two tags where I live. So, you know, kill one, get it in the fridge, and then uh, then mess around with the bow. <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, you've heard his voice now in the background, so I'll go ahead and give him an introduction. Uh, So he's a Canadian-born, professionally trained chef and co-owner of Antler Kitchen and Bar. uh, He's a hunter, forager, husband, and father. And back in 2000, as I mentioned earlier, he published the Hunter Chef Cookbook, which features a collection of over 100 recipe and butchery guides. Michael Hunter, welcome uh, to the Wild Fishing Game podcast, officially. <laughs> uh, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, really excited. Uh, I mean, we kind of we have a little bit of history that people may not know. Like, I think we got a couple of your articles floating around on the Harvest and Nature website yeah. from like back 2015 or yeah, something. 2015. <laughs> The, the humble beginnings. Um, so no, it was awesome. I was, I was reading through some of those the other day. Uh, it's good stuff. It's always good to go back and read the, yeah. I guess what people call the, the vintage stuff now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, no, it's cool. I'm, I'm glad we were able to connect and get you on the show. So uh, definitely want to hit on your, your cookbook, uh, talk a lot about wild food because it's a great opportunity to chat with you about that. Um, but for those that may not know you or know your story, can you kind of uh, tell a little bit more about yourself and, and your journey, yeah, hunting, culinary, anything you want to spell yeah. in there? We're all ears. Yeah. Well, I guess my um, introduction to the outdoors is, is uh, growing up on a farm. Um, I grew up on a horse farm um, north, about an hour north of Canada's largest city, Toronto. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just, as a kid, you know, ran around in the mud and, had you know dogs and cats and horses and yeah i just love being outside and i remember 
going to school and taking field trips and learning about, um, you know, we did a, a, a trip into a forest one year. And I think had something to do with maple syrup, but also the leeks, the wild leeks started coming out of the ground. And I remember, you know, they showed us and all these little kids are eating, you know, these wild onions slash wild leeks and the bus just reeked like our onion breath <laughs> on the way home. And I just, I was just, you know, love, I love the outdoors. I was raised in the outdoors and, um, but no one in my family hunted for food. It was, mm-hmm. um, my introduction to hunting was through horses where, um, my mom was a member of a riding club where they would fox hunt. On oh, horseback. wow. So, um, you know, it's a, my, my, my mom has an English background and that's, that's the sport in England. Mm-hmm. And here it's not so much foxes, it's the coyote population. So the hounds would, you know, there's a huntsman with a horn that blows the horn and the hounds kind of listen to him through the horn. And, um, you know, he's got a pack of hounds and then there's the field behind him. Um, he's got a couple guys that help, help with the hounds they are called whips. And then there's the, um, you know, all the members of the hunt would ride, you know, behind and, and, um, we did that for sport and, you know, farmers would call the hunt club to come to their land and hunt just as a service to help them and, and give the hunt club, you know, um, permission to ride and have fun on their property. And, um, so that was my introduction to hunting and the, the huntsman of this hunt club ended up taking me turkey hunting when I was 18. And I thought turkeys were just domesticated farm animals. I didn't know they were in the wild. <laughs> and at this point, I, I had been cooking at a couple diners locally. Uh, I got a job in a restaurant when I was 13. And um, I was very interested in food. I was gardening. I had watched the movie Food, Inc. and was very kind of you know, newly passionate about mm-hmm. you know, eating, eating organic and, and you know, became aware of factory farming and antibiotics and growth hormones and food and all these things that, you know, we didn't really know about. Um, and it's when I went hunting for the first time for wild turkey that I really got to taste the difference between how a turkey should taste and farm turkey. And it really just blew my mind. And as a, a young chef and really curious mind, uh, I was just, you know, I'm totally obsessed um, with, with hunting right from then on. It was, you know, I didn't want to eat you know, farm raised anything at that point. It's, this is how, you know, hunting is how food is supposed to taste. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really just how kind of it all began. Nice. And, uh, you know, I, I love to hear that, especially amongst uh, chefs who hunt and hunters who are chefs. Uh, mm-hmm. That that really, it kind of tells that story piece. And I think that's something we all sort of appreciate is like it paints the picture from, you know, I don't want to use the cliche, but from like field to table or, you know, yeah. whatever. And uh, yeah. it, it adds into the validity of the whole thing. I don't think there's many people that set out to be like, I'm going to, I'm going to go cook this frozen piece of thing that I found in the back of the freezer very passionately. Um, (laughs) So uh, that's awesome that you were able to make that connection. And uh, I guess how did, how did it continue to grow and how did you foster that growth with both the culinary side of things and your hunting? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, in the early days when I was an apprentice, I didn't have a lot of free time. So, um, you know, I now, you know, as you guys are, I'm sure, you know, opening day, we're out there, we, you know, we've been practicing and everything else. I remember, you know, missing half a turkey season because I was working and mm-hmm. if I got to go one or two weekends, it was, uh, you know, a real kind of luxury. Um, so, you know, in the early days, it was definitely harder to get out. Um, and, and even when I opened uh, Antler five years ago, um, it was very difficult to get out. Um, and now as, as the restaurant is, is, uh, is under control, um, uh, I'm able to spend more time with my family and, and, uh, get outside some more. And, and the more it's the more time I spend out in the outdoors, the less time I want to spend, um, at work in the kitchen. So it's, it's, <laughs> That's uh, fair. it's a very difficult, uh, you know, kind of place to be, but cause I love both worlds, but, uh, you know, I think it's time for me now, you know, I've, I've devoted my life to restaurants, um, you know, since I was 13 years old, it's, it's, uh, you know, I really want to focus on myself and my family now. Nice. That's awesome. So looking back, uh, and you mentioned antler, uh, five years now, is that that's yeah. what you said? Yeah. Congrats. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So what happened, you know, um, I, I was working for other people, you know, all my life and, 
um, getting into hunting and foraging and wanting to work with wild foods. Um, you know, a lot of owners of restaurants where I worked were, were sort of less receptive. Um, you know, once in a while we could do a feature with game, mm -hmm. but I wanted to put game on the menu and that was always an issue. The owner didn't want it or thought people wouldn't like it or, um, you know, the last restaurant I worked at before Antler, um, actually said that we don't want PETA protesters outside. Um, <laughs> funny enough, it, uh, it came true for me at Antler, but, um, yeah, he kind of called it, but, um, so that was really, I was just, you know, wanting to cook, uh, you know, my food, uh, the food that I wanted to cook and serve. And, and that's, um, that's sort of how, how Antler started, um, along with, you know, wanting to do a, a cookbook about wild game because every everyone I spoke to in the city where I lived and my family and friends, um, everyone I spoke to about hunting wanted me to either take them uh, with me or just talk to them about hunting or teach them about hunting. Um, I thought it'd be a really good time to, uh, to write a cookbook about the subject. Yeah. Um, and that, uh, you know, working on that cookbook, writing the cookbook um, kind of snowballed and, and turned into a restaurant at the same time. <laughs> that's good it's uh two birds one stone <laughs> yeah yeah it kind of you know canceled the restaurant really took hold, took over uh and that's why it took 10 years to write the book is because we put it on hold for about three years while we opened the restaurant so it's fair but it gives you a good test bed to test new recipes yeah uh, yeah so you mentioned uh i i wasn't going to touch on it much but you <laughs> mentioned it the the pita protesters yeah. <laughs> i'm sure you get this this question a lot about like how that story uh and how it played out uh i've mm -hmm. seen a lot of the videos and i've seen your other interviews but uh, i don't know that all yeah. of our listeners have yeah um so i think we had been open for about two years and uh, you know just so everybody knows you know we don't claim that uh we hunt what we you know what we serve or anything mm -hmm. like that all our, our meat just like the states has to be farmed um and we buy from local game farms and we serve um, the restaurants called antler um and we serve you know whatever would be wild and growing uh locally in in canada and where we live so um we buy uh local wild fish from all the great lakes mm -hmm. and all three coasts um and we buy deer from you know deer duck rabbit uh wild boar uh, from ontario and our bison comes from alberta so we're we're very local um and one day a staff member wrote on our chalkboard sign that we put on the street venison is the new kale and uh <laughs> you know it was kind of during that big kale craze a few years ago that it's the healthiest plant on earth um and a cyclist rode by that was a member of a PETA organization that would go to slaughterhouses and protest the killing of animals and things like that. So uh, she took offense and brought her little troop down to my restaurant and uh, protested our building once a week for 11 months. Wow. And uh, after about three months, I got completely fed up and pissed off and took a we got whole deer delivered once a week um so i took a back leg and threw it in the window on a cutting board and decided <laughs> to i was going to joint this thing and break it down in front of them as a as a great big fu um back at them so um they filmed it put it online and it just absolutely exploded in every sense of going viral um the last uh, I, time I even looked, it was um, 25 million views on the Daily Mail Facebook page, um, and it went uh, it went worldwide. We were getting articles uh, sent to us uh, from uh, Russia, France, um, England, um, South Africa, Singapore, New Zealand, Australia. Uh, almost every news outlet in the United States contacted us. Wow, and across Canada, it was just bizarre, completely bizarre. Um, and yeah, we got a you know a, a, an outpour of support for us, which uh, was the really touching uh, part of part of it all. Um, you know, and and what these people were doing just wasn't inspiring anybody. It was just malicious, mm -hmm. and, uh, and you know, we were good, honest, hardworking people that had a small family-run restaurant. Um, you know, just trying to do the right thing and um you know they didn't feel that it was in line with their beliefs and uh and try to change everyone else's beliefs and and uh you know the support for us was um 
far greater than I would have ever imagined. That's awesome. Yeah, I uh, I remember seeing that, and I, that was one thing that came to mind. And I was like, I I hope that there is a, a positive side of this for you and for the restaurant yeah. <laughs> versus the the possibility of negatives that it could bring. Because you know, like you said, you guys are just trying to do what's right and you know mm-hmm. honoring the food and and taking. You know, it'd be different if these people were protesting an institution that was not doing good things yeah. or not trying yeah. to do the right yeah. thing and, and people may be more on board, but I don't know. And we found it's... out that that's actually their game plan is they, you know, they know from experience that protesting mm-hmm. outside of McDonald's and Harvey's or, you know, fast food joints, nobody cares. And mm-hmm. the people that are going there don't care. And people driving by don't care because everybody knows it's shit. So <laughs> they purposely uh, target little family places um, because they, they preach this thing they call the humane meat myth that, you know, killing of an animal at the end of the day is still murder and it's wrong. So, you know, and I talk, I've talked about this before and if, you know, I think we have a lot of, uh, beliefs in common with, with, uh, with vegans and that's, you know, we don't want to, I don't want to see animals harmed either. And if they wanted to talk to me about, you know, reform for slaughterhouses or, reform for factory farming with the government, you know, I would support them. Um, yeah. You know, and that's why I hunt because I don't really believe in, in a lot of the uh, factory farming practices that are going on in our world. Um, but, you know, they're not interested in having intellectual dialogue They're They want to, they want you to conform to their belief and, mm-hmm. um, in, in an instantaneous manner. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, I don't think eating a vegan diet is that is healthy for everybody either. You know, it might mm-hmm. work for some people, but it doesn't work for a lot of people, uh, you know, in a physical sense. So, um, so anyway, that, that's the, that story in a nutshell. <laughs> Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. We've been talking a lot. Oregon, where Colin is at, has a yeah. group that's proposing this. Um, it's, it's a petition now. Petition initiative, okay. I think. Right? Yeah. PI thirteen or IP thirteen. Yeah. Initiative initiative petition. That's right. IP IP thirteen, and they're trying to get it on the ballot to basically uh, make it uh, a crime to do any harm to any animal in the entire state of Oregon. And sort of their whole philosophy is if you go and you dig into their like Q&A section of their website, which I did because I wrote a, a nice little article on it, but they they have this concept of where the agriculture system will just balance itself out. And it's like, well, we won't have meat, but we've got all these other great things that will make up for it after that. And I was like, you know, I, I'm not a fan of the factory farming, but you have a, local farmers and ranchers that are doing good things and trying to mm-hmm. do the right thing. And like, yeah. like to me, that that type of concept doesn't seem to fit well. No. And, uh, and you know, to live off a vegan diet, they need to factory farm uh, soybean. They have to oh, factory yeah. farm, you know, vegetables that's, you nice know, agriculture called yeah. monocropping and things like mm-hmm. that that has, uh, you know, negative side effects for the planet as well so um yeah it's just a very ignorant belief you know unless you have a garden and you're growing all your vegetables yourself and everything else but you know eating um i've done some like vegan cleanses and things like that to try and be healthy and whatever and and uh i've gone to vegan restaurants with friends and and stuff like that and i'm just not full after eating i could eat the biggest plate of vegetables and rice and 
anything else you could think of and put that on there. And half an hour later, I'm starving again. And it just, uh, it goes right through my body. It doesn't sit well in my stomach. And um, it's just, it, it doesn't sit well with me. And I've actually um, kind of researched a little bit. There's a book called, uh, I think it's Eat for Your Blood Type or something like that. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, I've heard um, of that. And, you know, um, people with an O negative blood type need lots of meat protein, which, you know, I am, need lots of iron, need, need lots of, you know, vitamins and minerals that come from meat. So, you know, I don't really believe that a vegan lifestyle is, is healthy for everybody, mm-hmm. um, you know, which is a problem if, if they think that, uh, you know, you need to cancel uh, eating meat and fish, you know, over the entire world. Um, there was scenarios in, in Canada when... Um, the government was giving uh, Inuit populations in, in the Arctic beef uh, to eat instead of whale. Um, and the people weren't warm in the winter because they weren't eating whale blubber. Um, that was something they had eat, eaten for centuries. Mm-hmm. Uh, and beef fat didn't have the same kind of nutrients in it to keep them warm. So, you know, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, making, you know, humans eat whatever, you know, you think they should eat doesn't really work for the entire world and geographically yeah. wherever you're from. So yeah, and you know, physically, culturally, uh, those things have evolved. Our bodies have evolved over time, depending on where you're at, to eat certain things. Just as you mentioned, and I think about uh, Native Americans in, in the states and how. Uh, the entering of like rations of coffee and flour and sugar and all that. And now years down the road, you see high levels of diabetes because those things are still uh, provided to reservations to Native American communities in the form of commodities. And it's just like you still get those products now. And we know that they're not great for you, but what choice do you have? And so – yeah, it's it, it's an interesting man. We could go down. A it's complicated. Hole. It's, yeah. yeah, it's so complicated. <laughs> and the funny thing is, you know, you I saw something on online uh, recently, and it was like a, a combine that had you know harvested a whole bunch of wheat, and in the back, um, you know, was like thousands and thousands of like grasshoppers that were uh, <laughs> jumping around inside. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the the trailer of this combine that were half chewed up and spat out and uh it was like you know like just because you're eating a grain you don't think you're doing damage to animals or insects but you you know they just slaughtered hundreds of thousands of grasshoppers in this field you know let alone rabbits or fawns or mice and whatever else is living in that field is getting chewed up by this combine um you know there there's blood on their hands uh whether they know it or not it's great. It, it makes me think about. Uh, I, I was watching. I forget a. It was a YouTube video from somewhere, but it was about. Uh, I think it was an African American family in uh in Central Florida, uh, where they were doing sugar cane. So they grow a lot of sugar cane there. And uh, mm-hmm. as they they would go out, as they were cutting the sugar cane, they would run alongside whatever tractor device that they're using to cut it with, and the rabbits would run out, and they would run alongside, and they would club the rabbits. And then they would take the rabbits home with them. And it's just like this whole, you know, that's uh, you're buying sweetener for your coffee and <laughs> someone's knocking off rabbits. Yeah, same same concept. It. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it just goes to show you the complexities definitely in, in our food yeah. system. And, and just because, uh, you know, like you said, unless you're growing it yourself. I heard, I heard something about rice fields where they were uh... – uh, as wild rice fields and they were shooting like thousands of ducks to protect these rice crops. <laughs> yeah. Same concept. You know, people don't know this, doesn't talk about this stuff. Well, but. it's probably some delicious duck though. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, Mike, I don't know if you have any experience with uh, Nutria, but I'm doing the same thing with Nutria out here. Um, okay. Like, I don't know what Nutria is. They're like a little, well, they're invasive, but they're a, um, they're like right in between a muskrat and a beaver. But they're introduced. Okay. To, I, I don't know. I can see Justin smirking a little bit. I talk about it like every time I'm on here. <laughs> um, they're highly invasive. They're brought in for the fur trade in like the late 1800s, early 1900s. Okay. And then when the fur trade collapsed in the 40s, they basically just got released. So they're all over the American South and then this little tiny pocket of Northwest Oregon where I live. 
Um, Interesting. Yeah. Which so, I'm still baffled how they got to that one small area of, yeah, of Oregon. I, Some I, farm I, let them go. Yeah. There's I, one I, farm let them go. I, I think that's, that was actually the case. I think there was like there were a yeah. couple muskrat farms around here or something, muskrat fur farms. And yeah, they just let them go. I mean, they're they're in Europe, they're in Japan, they're all there's like a little pocket in Africa. I think they're in. They were all introduced to. But um, I mean, mm-hmm. same thing. We go out there and go out there with buddies and shoot them. But I mean, we're still taking them home and doing something with them. You know, helping out the farmers with their fields and then you know cooking them, mm-hmm. making hats out of them. So. <laughs> that's interesting yeah, hats on the wall. i'm gonna google that i have no idea what this looks like oh they're gross looking yeah but uh <laughs> yeah they're they're we had they're them so when I, I went to college in new orleans and and we had them they like would live in uh you know all over the place you'd be like driving down the road and there'd be a like a kind of a drainage with water in it and they would be swimming around yeah. there they're just like terribly terribly invasive there's a rumor i don't know if it's true but one of the sheriffs of one of the counties the like parishes down there uh back in i think it was the 80s would basically just encourage people to go drive around at night in their pickup trucks and just shoot nutria in in the drainages all over town yeah just shine the headlights out of them exactly yeah yeah Yeah. blind them so uh let's let's shift gears a little bit and let's uh let's talk a little bit about your cookbook uh, mm-hmm. we can talk some recipes and stuff. Uh, so what kind of, we talked earlier about kind of what the restaurant and the book together, but what really laid the foundation for whenever you were like, I'm doing it, I'm going to write this cookbook and, and how mm-hmm. that all, how that work. Um, well, I think I just, you know, I kind of just touched on it earlier. It was mm-hmm. really my, uh, growing interest and obsession with the outdoors, um, sort of just rubbed off on my family and friends and everyone that, you know, I would speak to would ask me to, uh, to talk to them about it or teach them or take, take, you know, take them with me. And I just thought, you know, this would be a great, uh, a great idea for a cookbook. Um, I worked for a, a famous chef at the time, uh, Scott Conant out of New York. Um, and, and when I started, he gave me his cookbook and handed it to me. And I kind of thought, you know, yeah, you know, he's this big famous chef and he's all over TV, but he's really just a normal guy at mm-hmm. the end of the day. And, and, um, you know, working for him, uh, and uh, at the same time getting more passionate about hunting, um, really was sort of the inspiration for the book. And, you know, I thought if, you know, Scott, Scott could do this, I could do this, you know? Um, and I really just wanted to teach people about hunting and foraging because in the city where I lived, it just seems it's totally forgotten about. So, um, I wanted to be a part of, uh, you know, re-educating people about where we came from. And it's cool because you, you really go in great detail uh, the way the book's laid out as far as like large game, small game, fish forage, desserts, and cocktails too. That's all. Uh, I, I like the dessert part. I always like to see the, the dessert bit in there because, yeah. you know, hunters and anglers often don't think about the desserts no. coming from the wild. Yeah, so. it's pretty neat. You can do a lot of stuff with. Uh, even today, a friend of mine texted me. Um, uh, you might, you guys might have it in, in some of the forests there. It's called Old Man's Beard, and it's kind of like a moss, uh, and it's really good for starting fires. It's, it's almost like um, it. birch yeah. bark. Yeah, mm-hmm. Old Man's Beard, and uh, I mentioned that to my friend. He goes, "It's also he's an indigenous chef," and he said, uh, "It's also great for tea." Uh, nice. And I had I had no idea, and it's supposed to be good for like respiratory problems and. Uh, it's like a medicinal tea and I'm like, well, I've been burning this stuff for years. So <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, really just kind of interesting. And it's one of those things. It's just a, you know, the hunting, fishing, cooking, you know, it's, it's just a never ending uh, journey um, of knowledge, you know, and it's, uh, there's always little tricks and things to learn from, from friends and elders and, um, you know, other cultures. It's, um, you know, it's really just, just fascinating. And, um, you know, human civilization just has moved so far away from, uh, natural lifestyles. Uh, it's really fun just exploring all that mm-hmm. again. Yeah. Well, I, I agree completely. And, it, and it's neat. You, it had the ability to kind of build on stuff every day. And I look at it both from like a writing sense of where I'm, I'm trying to create content and write recipes and do that. But, you know, also day to day, I'm trying to feed my family in the same manner. And it's just like, yeah. sometimes you got to get, you got to get a little creative while also, you know, stumbling onto something new, you know, like your friend mentioned and just being super inspired to, to try it. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm curious now, I'm going to have to go look yeah. this, look this up yeah. just from our conversation yeah. here. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. It's all kinds of neat stuff we can do. And we use, we try and use wild forage herbs and, and things like that in our cocktails at the restaurant too. Um, you know, there's all, there's all kinds of fun desserts you can, uh, you can make, you know, uh, one of them in there is wild ginger ice cream, mm-hmm. uh, which grows, you know, over a lot of Canada and the United States, uh, staghorn sumac. We use a lot of, um, in, in desserts I, and cocktails. I and, saw you um, have a, a cedar sorbet. Yeah. And that's probably like the most basic thing that grows in, you know, everyone's backyard. Yeah. Um, and you know, if you kind of research it, cedar tea was used uh, for like early settlers to cure their scurvy, you know, when they're mm-hmm. making the trip from, uh, you know, Britain and France to North America. So, um, and it was something that the natives showed them, you know, yeah, you don't have fruits and vegetables, but you can drink this cedar tea and uh, it's full of vitamin C. So, um, yeah, there's, there's, you know, all kinds of things you can get creative with in the kitchen. And it's cool too. And you think, uh, especially a lot of the, the wild herbs and forageables, I guess that's a word. We'll, we'll make it a word today, but, uh, the, those items, uh, you know, boil them in water, you know, stewing them or getting the, the sort of the essence out of them and then using mm-hmm. those to flavor other things. Exactly. Um, you think you like spruce tips or, uh, yeah. I've got some, some jelly upstairs, uh, yeah. from Alaska. It's like spruce tip jelly, which that's really cool great. yeah i've seen spruce tip in beer now like it's yeah. it's becoming really popular there are, uh, people are using pine cones there are two mm-hmm. breweries out here where i live that have rival spruce tip beers uh, they're both nice. delicious that's so cool but yeah it's uh, yeah it's probably like the best thing to so cool. one thing i, I did want to talk about specifically it's listed that caught my my attention amongst other recipes in your book is the the moose tongue pastrami yeah. So how how in the world did you settle on moose tongue pastrami? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I mentioned earlier my background is English, so I remember mm-hmm. having uh, jellied beef tongue as a kid, um, <laughs> and working in restaurants, beef tongue is used uh, quite often, um, and I, I love it. I think you know I like eating all those uh, the offals, mm-hmm. you know, liver, heart, um, kidneys. Um, and tongue is just one of those things that, uh, if it's, if it's cooked right, it's such a great protein. Um, and you know, now it's, it's becoming a bit more expensive with supply and demand, but it used to be, you know, dirt cheap cause nobody wanted mm-hmm. it. So the butchers were practically giving it away. Um, and, um, you know, at the restaurant we've made, uh, I think once there was a restaurant I worked at. Uh, we did a moose tongue, uh, not a moose tongue, a beef tongue uh, pastrami sandwich with pretzel loaf bread oh, wow. and like sauerkraut and stuff like that. Um, and I just, you know, every everything that I hunt with, I try and incorporate it, um, you know, just just like uh, I would I would beef or chicken or lamb, you know. Um, uh, you know, I, I found the moose tongue similar in size to a cow's mm-hmm. um, and, you know, pretty similar in flavor. So I, I already had this tongue pastrami recipe and it was pretty you know for me it was a natural yeah. kind of thing to eat um where some of my hunting buddies are like i don't know about that but <laughs> um you know now it's pretty funny now uh you know i've sort of earned their trust where if i if i bring something new they'll just try it so um awesome. but i remember that one of my good friends that i still hunt with today when we first met and started hunting we were turkey hunting and he looked back and he couldn't see me and i was like on my hands and knees picking morels and he was like, what the hell is this guy doing? Like, he thought it was like, <laughs> so crazy. He's like, we're hunting turkeys. He's on his hands and knees in the woods. Gold mine over here. Um, yeah. Well, the, we hit this huge patch and I gave him something to take home to his wife uh, or to cook. And his wife was like, there's no fucking way. We're eating this with the kids. You know? like, some, some guy you met said we could eat these mushrooms. Um, and then now, you know, 10 years later, it's so funny. They popped up in his yard and they, you know, they eat them now. So it's pretty funny. That's awesome. It's crazy, uh, morels. So we're we're still getting morels here in Colorado at, at various wow. elevations. Yeah, cool. Uh, I'm I join one of the Facebooks of like mycological groups uh, yeah. when I first got out here, and I love yeah. seeing the things. They're that dangerous. Those Facebook groups are dangerous. Man. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> those people but, uh, are crazy. <laughs> I I am very novice in in the world of mushrooms and and foraging, but man. The, it's cool to see some of the things that people like this. I, I saw it was just last night. This lady had a puff ball that yeah. was probably the size of like a large gym bag. 
and she just found it. She's like, it's already yeah. starting to yellow, so I can't eat it. But like, look yeah. at this thing. And she held it up. And I was just like, this is Whoa. insane. Yeah. yeah. And it's just growing um, out there. <laughs> yeah. There's a recipe in my book for a puffball carpaccio, which is kind Ooh. of fun. Oh, nice. That is fun. Yeah. yeah. Did- it works better if you have a backpack, but you can, you can, uh, we pickle, we sliced it thin, uh, pickled it. And then, uh, if you don't have a vacuum sealer, you can use a rolling pin and kind of squish it out. Okay. Um, but we did like a super, you know, thin, like a beef carpaccio plate with arugula and Parmesan cheese and all that stuff, but with a puffball mushroom. It was really neat. That's cool. And how's the, I, I've never had a puffball. How's the texture? Mm-hmm. Is it, is it mushroomy as you would, would think? Yeah. It's a little softer, like the inside. It's like a, like a soft sponge almost inside it just kind of sucks up whatever liquid okay. you put on it um so when we slice it thin and basically pour uh boiling hot pickling liquid on it um okay to kind of cook it and then um and then you, when you squish it out with a rolling pin you kind of get more of a texture and flatten it get all the air out and stuff so that's cool yeah I'll have um, yeah to... it's in there it's in there in the i think it's in the foraging section but it's uh it's one of my kind of favorite fun recipes with puffballs i'm in a it's good uh, I, the a mushroom hotspot out here in Northwest Oregon, but uh, mm-hmm. I haven't really gotten into it like full blown where people are going out. And I mean, I guess like people travel from all over to come for chanterelle season. Oh yeah, but um, yeah, yeah. I've just occasionally stumbled across some some good ones. Like we we found those yeah. oysters down in uh, when we were bear hunting. <laughs> we're quite sure what they were yep. at first uh, nice. out of sale service. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. I mean, I found a lobster mushroom up here. Um, yeah, lobster mushrooms are they're one of my favorites yeah, too. Yeah, the chanterelles in the there's, spring um, are just, I mean. There's a lobster mushroom bisque recipe in the book. And if you tell people it was shellfish, you know, they'd believe you. It's just, yeah. it tastes exactly like seafood. It's incredible. Yeah, it was oh, when I, I'm excited I, I mean, this too. one was actually like laying on the trail that I was hiking on. But uh, yeah. I, I mean, it, it was very tender, very good. Yeah. Um, yeah it's neat. it's funny like alive. when they start to rot like when they're if you if you don't find them quick enough yeah. um you can actually smell them it just smells like a you know dead lobster somewhere it's yeah. really funny. you can smell them in the woods yeah it's pretty crazy, it's pretty crazy. but I'm, I'm always so, i train my eyes to always just i'm always looking down like oh is there a yeah. over there or something you know like <laughs> always looking for stuff on the ground you gotta get i made a commitment to myself uh couple days ago I'm, i gotta get out and do some some foraging as i'm out yeah. and about this fall so yeah uh, honestly you'll you'll find stuff just hiking like just you know take your friends or family for a hike and take the dog out and and you'll find something it's if as long as you're looking for it. like i'll find chicken of the woods these beautiful mushrooms mm-hmm. uh right beside trails and people just have no idea what they are and they you know you're trained as a kid don't eat things you don't know what they mm-hmm. are and and uh so I'll, I'll find morels on public walking trails it's crazy um it's actually find if you just look for it if you just know what you're looking for you know my, my kids just told me uh before i got on the podcast i was cooking in the kitchen and they're like dad there's a mushroom out here i was like don't touch it don't yeah. touch it i'm gonna come out and see what it is yeah. <laughs> yeah. and i completely forgot but i'm, I'm yeah. gonna go follow up on this on this mushroom investigation after this <laughs> <laughs> Um, I did want to ask you about, uh, in your book, you talk about the seared foie gras. Yeah. Um, how does, how does wild, uh, goose liver compare to, to domestic? Um, so foie gras is, uh, it's man-made. So, Mm -hmm. um, there would never be a case where you'd have, it, it means fat liver. Mm -hmm. So what happens is a, you know, an ancient kind of French practice, um, where they force feed ducks for their last, I think it's the last week of their life. Um, and it, it creates, uh, it's basically it, the duck gets like, a a liver that's inflamed and, and, and sort of like the texture of, uh, like butter is really mm-hmm. like cold butter. So you can slice it into, into like large slices. And when you pan fry it, you get a really crispy, um, outer edge almost like crispy you know chicken skin but the inside is is like almost like liquid kind of fat it's um it's a really rich kind of uh delicacy from france so wild geese and duck uh livers are really just like a chicken liver from the store that's that's the texture um you know the only difference with with foie gras is is the feeding of the ducks at uh you know kind of like when when beef cattle 
are finished on grain. You so know, should we should we be seeking out ducks from the local ponds here? It's not the same thing. Their liver That's gets fair. swollen because of the yeah. amount of food that they're eating uh, in, in like the last week of their life. So it's, it's very similar to finishing a cow on grain kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But, um, so yeah, so that, that's the difference between, uh, you know, a, a duck liver in the wild versus these, these farms. And, and it's, you know, it has to, it has to be farmed. It's a practice that's like a man, man-made type of thing. Hmm. Interesting. We, we, uh, mm-hmm. I, I was just curious cause I, I read the recipe. It's the yeah. seared, seared foie gras with foie gras biscuits and preserved cherries. And I was wondering, yeah. Uh, sort of if, if you went with a wild, but that makes total sense now. Uh, yeah. I'm glad I asked the question, yeah. though. It's really neat. It's, you know, their liver swells up, you know, almost like five times the size oh, yeah. of, of its normal liver. And it ends up being like, it almost looks like a pound of butter um, type of thing. And you cut it in slices. It's so rich. I One of my, yeah. uh, I think it was like my third or, third or fourth restaurant I worked at. I worked at in yeah. San Diego um, at a place, um, Bankers Hill Way. It was on top of a, a building like, 20 story building and uh we made for the happy hour menu seared foie gras sliders and i was like this is just like the most rich crazy thing (laughs) just melts in your mouth yeah absolutely it's eating like a seared it's like you took a slice of butter and like floured the edges Mm -hmm. uh and pan fried it so it was kind of crispy on the outside but like melting butter on the inside like it's just yeah it's a very rich gluttonous uh product it was yeah, it was delicious, and then California banned it, right? Uh, except yeah. the only place you could buy it at was the gift shop at a uh, Yosemite National Park. Okay, because it was federal land, and they could sell it, right. so they yeah, capitalized on that. <laughs> <laughs> that's really funny. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I, a lot of people get upset about it, and uh, I understand it. You know. There's uh, there's more humane ways of producing it now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the old days they would use a metal funnel and ram it down the duck's throat and you know fill the duck up with grain. Um, you know, now the the practices are are a, lo- are a lot different. Um, and uh, there's more humane ways of doing it, but I think at the at the end of the day, it's it's still uh, a man-made type of product. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's let's uh, roll over to talk about your venison tenderloin with spice ash. I, yeah. what, uh, I guess what motivated you to start incorporating the ash and, and those products into some of your cooking? Um, well the spices, um, it, you know, when you toast spices, it brings out their flavor a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the ash crust is one that was, it was kind of, um, um, just kind of made by accident, you know, like you kind of, <laughs> I toasted them too much and it was black, but not, you know not um if you burn it too much you get like a white ash on it which ends up being kind of gritty and there's no flavor uh but if you toast everything till it's black it really brings out like a really nutty flavor um and in that spice blend it's uh sweet spices like cinnamon clove um star anise which is very licorice-y um all spice um clove i don't know if i said that already fennel things like that so and you're using using whole versions of these not like whole spices yeah so if if someone was to recreate it, it wouldn't be a powder yeah, so you have to use whole spices. You burn it with the uh, the broiler in your oven, or you can toast it in a frying pan, but it does create a lot of smoke, so you got to have a good fan going. But um, So you toast it all till everything's black, and then you, you puree it through uh, like a drink blender or like a Vitamix, and basically pulverize it to a powder, and then you can you sift it through a, a sieve, a okay. screen sieve, um, and you end up – it's almost like a coffee rub kind of texture. Mm-hmm um and it's just a very floral it smells like christmas um in the air when when you make it um and uh it's just really wonderful with with game meat it goes really well um with you know deer elk moose um things like that nice it sounds really good mm-hmm. and everybody loves the smell of christmas i guess or yeah it's, it's or very it has a very <laughs> floral uh spicy it smells like mulled wine almost yeah like a holiday dish yeah yeah it's, it's very fall like a, oriented like a mold wine braised Ooh, might be onto something yeah <laughs> um so what what's one of your favorites from the book favorite recipe um that spice ash you just mentioned is is up there um i really like some of the cocktails the the ginger wild ginger ice cream mm-hmm. um is incredible uh there's a wild boar uh cavatelli uh, mm. pasta that is just incredible um 
yeah it's basically just a collection of all my favorites um so it's uh you know each one of them is i'm passionate about in some way or another and has you know been important to me in the restaurants i've worked in and uh, things like that so it's awesome it's like hearing the backstory to a song you know like your favorite album and yeah well it's exactly like (laughs) writing a menu is like writing an album you know there's things that you love that you put on the menu at the restaurant that people don't like or things like that it's it's uh it's very funny you know you have your kind of like hits you know your hit singles on there it's uh <laughs> it's interesting nice like a set list but uh yeah so where where all can uh everyone uh connect and purchase your cookbook at oh thanks um so yeah the the cookbook is on my website uh thehunterchef.com mm-hmm. um there's a button on there for the the store um and uh so we ship those out of canada they are signed copies um but if it's easier amazon has it chapters and they go bass pro shops has them uh in a lot of their locations um they were at uh, funny enough they were at a few costco's uh someone sent me a picture oh. from costco uh montana or bozeman oh, wow. uh, i think bozeman. Had one in, yeah that, that makes montana. sense yeah. <laughs> yeah um so yeah they're they're very readily available uh online so Nice. Um, and then you know social media wise at the hunter chef uh you know twitter instagram facebook all that good stuff nice awesome uh well we're kind of like ramping down on time here uh this is kind of the point in the show where we give everybody the opportunity to kind of give a last thought or alibi so you being the guest i would, I would open it up if you have a last thought you want to leave <laughs> us with um i don't i think we covered everything man nice that's okay. Oh, responsible Call. foraging. R- learn about, uh, you know, if there's ramps. I think you guys call them ramps in the States. Um, they don't grow back. So if whatever you're foraging, just kind of research uh, what it is you're picking. Fiddleheads, same thing. You can't just pick them all from the plant or the plant dies. Um, so make sure, you know, and also don't eat anything you're not 100% sure what it is um, because yeah. there's a lot of mushrooms out there that will kill you. <laughs> yeah. yep. It is no joke. <laughs> a lot of don't, don't by... always trust everybody on yeah. the internet. <laughs> no, exactly. And I mean... <laughs> stop messaging me pictures of mushrooms asking if you can eat them because I'm not going to tell you. Um, I'll tell people. Some, sometimes I'll respond and say, do you trust a stranger with your life? Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and but, you know, by the time you have a stomachache, your liver is shutting down and it's too late. You're going to die. Ooh. So. It's, uh, it's like a terrible way to go. It's Still. the worst way to go. <laughs> Ooh. So, all right, Colin, last thought, man. Yeah, I just want to say thanks for Michael for uh, coming on. Uh, it was a really great talk. I really like the the idea that you have with with starting your restaurant and the cookbook. Um, it's really something to look forward to and and aspire to achieve those those recipes so if i'm ever in toronto i'm, I'm bracking up a list of great restaurants from our podcast guests and, uh, <laughs> come on by man up in toronto love to have you i'm definitely swinging by so thanks for coming awesome. on thanks for having me yeah thanks michael for coming on uh it, it's definitely I'll, I'll echo what colin says i'm i'm excited i'm i'm gonna try to plan a trip to toronto now as, as soon as uh, as soon as things improve uh, yeah but we're uh, an hour from buffalo that's what i tell everybody perfect not far yeah <laughs> i can swing it i got some yeah. friends that live in buffalo so we'll, we'll make go. it a, a two-for-one trip Corey's but, right down uh, the road. Yeah. yeah it's just awesome. gonna i'm gonna take it on a tour i guess yeah, <laughs> yeah. go stop but, by uh, niagara falls and come to toronto yeah, yeah. boom yeah. taking the sights see the family visit friends eat delicious food yeah it's like that's the best trip yeah. so well um i, I definitely enjoyed the conversation a lot i think we hit a lot of good highlights both in your cookbook and just sort of learning more about you and and your experience in the outdoors and we had some great conversations about uh about food so that's always exciting i did make the mistake today is that i didn't eat before the show so now i'm like starving so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i'm gonna go deal with that after this but uh isn't that I would tell little, everyone out there our little intro for the show it says like it's, make sure it's you literally in the intro <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's a few times that I failed to do it, but today is one such day. Yeah. Uh, we talked about delicious food, so it doesn't help. But um, yeah, I would say everybody go go check out uh, Michael's cookbook. Uh, I got a copy here with me, and I've been flipping through it. I, I love it, and uh, go go connect with him on social media if you're not. Um, and then make sure you're following us over at Harvesting Nature too on whatever platform you're you're 
plugged into there instagram twitter we're we're everywhere and then uh whatever podcast platform you're listening to punch that five star button uh leave us a review tell us what we're doing wrong or you know tell us what we're doing right and i say this thanks everybody have a good night Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. A mule there, baby, right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.